That's where we've been spending this season of Advent, reflecting uh, on the birth of Jesus, uh, preparing for the return of Jesus. And here's what we've seen so far. Week one, we talked about Jesus's family tree. And if you are part of a dysfunctional family, then you're in good company because Jesus was part of a dysfunctional family. Uh, Jesus's family tree tells the story of brokenness and sin and that Jesus came into the world to deal with that very brokenness. And then in week two, we talked about the meaning of Jesus's name. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. And that Emmanuel means God with us. And we put those together. Jesus saves us by coming to be with us. In fact, that's the whole goal of the Bible. The whole goal of redemption is that God would be with his people. It's where we started. It's how he saves us. And it's where we will finish all of history. And then last week we talked about the different reactions to Jesus and how Herod responded with fear and anger, how the religious leaders responded with apathy and indifference. But the Magi, the wise men, they responded with worship and joy. And that's what we want to be. Now today, we're going to look at a very difficult part of Jesus' story, but a very important part. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 through 23. If you're using the church Bible, it's on page 808. Let's give our attention to God's word. Now when they, that's the the wise men, the magi, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. 
Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding it. Father, would you help? Would you help me to speak? And would you help us to understand? These are dark and terrible things that we read about here. God, would you help us to understand them and would you apply your word to our hearts that you may be glorified. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my wife uh, teaches PE for a homeschool co-op and so that means that she gets the, the customary Christmas gifts that teachers get at the end of the semester. And one of those gifts, somebody got us a nice smelling bottle of hand soap from Bath and Body Works. It smells great. I imagine that if you were to grind up a Christmas tree, a real one, not a fake one, uh, and sprinkle cinnamon on it, that's what this hand soap would smell like. Um, But oddly, this soap is called Hope Shines Bright. Now, no offense to the, the marketing team at Bath and Body Works, but it's just soap. And I don't know how they determined that this is what hope smells like in a bottle. But they did. But that captures really how we view this season, doesn't it? Uh, don't, hear me, uh, don't hear me being Ebenezer Scrooge. I like Christmas. I like celebrating Christmas. Uh, but often in the celebration, in all the reds and greens and golds and glitters, and when we sing songs like, May your days be merry and bright. We often talk about joy and hope, but we talk about them in very shallow ways. We ought to ask, joy in place of what? Hope instead of what? And it's passages like this that give us the what. This passage reminds us very clearly of why we need hope. It reminds us very clearly of why we need the God-man, Jesus, to come. And why we need him to come again. Because hope only shines bright in the midst of darkness. Christmas is not a time when we gloss over all of the sad things. We ought not paper over what is evil in the world. In fact, if we will see, if we will celebrate, uh, if we will acknowledge Jesus' own story, then we can actually begin to sing in the dark. And here's what I think this passage teaches us. It's this, that evil is bent on destroying good. But God's good purpose cannot be thwarted. Herod reminds us that evil is bent on destroying what is good, but God's good purpose cannot be thwarted. Let's look at this in a couple of ways. First, I want to point out that evil is real. Evil is not just a figment of our imaginations. It's not something that we uh, construct as a society. It's not a a myth that uh, is for superhero movies. Evil is real. It's not uncommon to hear people say, I just don't understand the world anymore. Things have gotten so bad. And things are bad. 
terrible things happen on a daily basis. Terrible things happen all over the world. Terrible, unspeakable things have happened to many of you. And we should be grieved when bad things happen. But we should not be surprised. This world has not changed its character. Evil is tragic. And evil is real. And it's ever present. And this passage is exhibit A. Did you know, I found, found this out this week, we have more historical source material telling us about Herod than just about any other ancient figure. We know more about Herod than we do about Julius Caesar. We know more about Herod than we do about Jesus. And what we know about Herod, he was called Herod the Great. He probably wanted to be called Herod the Great because uh, he thought a lot of himself. Uh, but he built lots of great things. He restored cities. He built huge buildings. Herod kept the peace. He was a, a king appointed by Rome, but he managed to keep the peace between Rome and Judea, which was no small thing. Judea was a powder keg of rebellion in Jesus' day, uh, and, and Herod managed to keep the peace. But we also know that Herod was a ruthless and violent man, especially in his later years. Uh, he had ten wives, which means he had lots of sons. And all of those sons were vying for the throne. And so there were regular plots uh, that Herod had to take care of. Herod put a number of his family members to death. He even killed his favorite wife. Uh, the story that sticks out to me the most about Herod is uh, the story from his deathbed. When Herod was about to die, he told his sister to gather all of the, the Jewish leaders in the stadium, in the hippodrome at Jericho. Uh, and she said, why? And he said, well, I know that on the day that I die, no one will be sad that I'm gone. So when I die, I want you to kill all of those men so that there will be mourning in the land when I die. That was Herod. That was how much Herod thought of himself and we see just how wicked Herod is, how evil Herod is. When he realizes that he's been duped by the Magi, that they have not returned to tell him where the baby Jesus, the boy Jesus, can be found, he flies into a rage. Because no baby in Bethlehem is going to take the throne from him, he sends his soldiers to Bethlehem and has all of the boys two and under murdered. Now, Bethlehem was a small place. The region around it was fairly small. So we're probably only talking somewhere between 10 and 20. But still, 20 boys, little boys, lost their lives because of Herod's evil. That's what sin does. It doesn't cut in straight lines. It doesn't make sense. That's what sin does to your heart. And your mind, not every one of us, of course, is Herod. But have you ever said something hurtful? You ever done something with your fist because you were threatened? Because you were afraid that somebody was going to take something from you because you were going to be out of control? 
We may not be Herod, but we certainly understand Herod's disease. When sin captures the heart, it leads to evil. A British pastor, John Bradford, is rumored to have said, But for the grace of God, there go I. That's true. That apart from God's restraining grace, you and I would be Herod. Evil is real. Evil is tragic. And it would seem constant. The Bible tells us, and history tells us, that Herod is just one person in a long line of evil, wicked people. The Bible tells us that almost from the beginning, Satan's master enemy, or excuse me, God's master enemy, Satan, has been working to crush God's plan. He has been actively working against God's plan. We see this in the book of Revelation. If you're uh, familiar with that, John sees a vision of a dragon, a great dragon, who tries to swallow up a woman and then tries to kill the woman's child. John's seeing the picture of history, of Satan working against God's purposes and plan. Human history is filled with Herods, great and small. And so we need to acknowledge, we must acknowledge, especially at Christmas, that evil is real. But we also have to acknowledge that evil is not out of control. I know this is a hard pill to swallow. Because this is what we want to ask. Why would God allow this to happen? Why wouldn't God strike Herod dead? Why wouldn't he keep Herod's men from getting to Bethlehem? Why do 20 little boys need to die if God is in control? This is probably the most common objection to Christianity. It's probably the most common objection to Christianity's view of God. How can God be good and omnipotent, all-powerful, if there is evil in the world? The fact that there's, there's evil in the world must mean that either God is not in control, complete control, or God is not good. If God is both good and all-powerful, why does evil still exist? Therefore, I cannot believe in a God who is both good and all-powerful. That's usually how the line of reasoning goes. And if that's your position, I understand. That's worth wrestling with. How many of us have asked... God, what are you doing? Where are you? What are you up to? Those are right questions to ask. And I say that they're right questions to ask because the Psalms, the, the prayer book, the song book of the Bible is full of those questions. They're called Psalms of Lament. This good and right that we ask, how long? Oh, Lord, that's a a common refrain. We don't have to be afraid of grief and lament. But if that's your position, that 
A good and all-powerful God cannot coincide with evil in the world. It's based on this assumption. That you understand all God's reasons for allowing evil. It's an assumption that says, I can fathom every single reason why God would allow this, and I can't think of a good one, therefore God must not exist. But you see what's happened. You've become the judge over God. You're the one who now has full understanding of everything. Philosopher Alan Plantinga puts it this way. Uh, He talks about noceums. Have you ever been bit by a noceum? I remember walking on the beach uh, one evening without bug spray on my feet. I could not see those sand fleas, but they were there. Uh, Plantinga says, if you have a, a pup tent and you say, look, uh, there's not a St. Bernard in my tent. That's a reasonable assertion because you can see a St. Bernard. If you don't see a St. Bernard in your tent, then it probably isn't there. It must not be there. But you can't say there are no seams. There are no no seams in my tent. Why? Because you can't see them. They're incredibly small. And their bites sting and itch a lot. Well, it's the same with evil. Just because there's evil in the world, and just because I can't fathom what God's reasons would be for allowing it, doesn't mean that there aren't reasons. Doesn't mean that God doesn't have reasons for allowing what he allows. If God is big enough for me to blame all the evil in the world on, he's certainly big enough to have reasons that I don't understand. Now, that may not be particularly comforting. There are those in the room who would say, well, God's sovereign, just how it is. But that's not how we respond to truth like this. The right response to truth like this is grief. It's lament. It's coming alongside those who suffer and weeping with them. Paul says, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. That's what we do. That's what we ought to do. We acknowledge that the world is full of evil and full of suffering and full of grief. And therefore, we can and ought to lament. We don't understand all of God's reasons. And we have to acknowledge that they're there. In fact, I want to point out in this passage that there's some light pulsing through the darkness. In verse 15, in verse 17... In verse 23, again and again and again, Matthew says, this happened to fulfill what was spoken. Jesus' escape fulfilled what God had spoken. The massacre at Bethlehem, the weeping fulfilled something God had spoken. Jesus' return, they're all part of God's redemptive plan. What's Matthew saying? He's saying God is not absent. He is at work. Even if we can't see it, God is at work. 
Matthew quotes from Hosea when he talks about calling his son out of Egypt. Hosea 11. And if you were to go back to Hosea 11, you would see it's a, a chapter where God is affirming his love for Israel. He was reminding his people of how much he loved them and of how often they had wandered away. He's reminding his people that he had rescued them before. And though they had forgotten him, he would not forget them. You see, in coming out of Egypt, Jesus is reenacting the story of Israel. He's reenacting the story of God's people. And where Israel had proved to be a faithless son, Jesus would prove to be faithful. He is the faithful son. What about the weeping at Ramah, where Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31? If you go back to Jeremiah 31, you'll see that the people are weeping because of the exile. God's people had been brought into the land, and yet they had continually turned away from God, and so God ejected them from the land. They had gone into exile. And so Jeremiah pictures Rachel, one of the mothers of Israel, weeping over her children who are no more. But I want you to listen to what comes next in Jeremiah. Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now listen to verse 16. Thus says the Lord. Keep your voice from weeping. Keep your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. I can't tell you why God has allowed suffering in your story. Why you've had to grieve the things that you've grieved. But I can tell you that to those who suffer, God says, I hear you. I'm working. In fact, how is Jesus described in Isaiah 53? He's described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Why is he acquainted with grief? Because he's the one who's come to defeat it. Jesus comes to defeat evil. That's why this story is so crucial to our celebration of Christmas. We must celebrate the coming of the Christ in view of the darkness. We don't have to gloss over pain and suffering at Christmas time. We can acknowledge there's great evil at work in the world, that there's great evil at work in your own heart. Because here's the good news. Jesus came to defeat evil and suffering and death. And how did he do it? By dying himself. A baby born to die. That's why he's called a a Nazarene. We're not really sure. There's not a, a direct quotation in the Old Testament that talks about the Messiah being from Nazareth. 
And so scholars think that what Matthew is saying is that Jesus comes from an unimportant place. That he's, he humbles himself. The king of heaven becomes a poor man from an unimportant place because that is how God will save the world. Jesus is saved from the schemes of the devil at this point in his life so that he can confront the schemes of the devil later in his life. Joseph's boy doesn't lose his life in the massacre at Bethlehem because he must give up his life on a cross outside of Jerusalem. John Piper is a pastor. He wrote a poem about this story a few decades ago. You can find it online at desiringgod.org. It's not a poem for the faint of heart, but I want to read a portion of it to you. Uh, It's about the innkeeper at Bethlehem. Piper names him Jacob. And he has two sons, Ben and Joseph, that he lost in the massacre, in Herod's massacre. And Piper pictures Jesus as an adult coming back to Bethlehem and sitting down with Jacob, the innkeeper. And they start talking about that day. Here's what here's how it goes. This is the end of the poem. Jacob says, I lost my arm, my wife, my sons. The cost of housing the Messiah here. Why would he simply disappear and never come to help? Maybe you've felt that way when you've said, God, where are you? Why would he just disappear? They sat in silence. Jacob wondered at the stranger's tears. Then Jesus says, I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy You gave my parents room to give me life, and then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live, another die. God's ways are high, and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared the night you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks, they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob. I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who has the power of death. And I will raise with life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too and give them, Jacob, back to you with everything the world can store. And you will reign Forevermore, evil is bent on thwarting and destroying God's good purpose. But God's good purpose cannot be thwarted. Another poem from much further back, Isaac Watts. It's the hymn, Joy to the World. Here's the third verse. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found.
That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's why we worship Jesus as King. Let's pray. Father, your ways are high. We cannot understand them. We cannot trace them all out. Your ways are beyond us. But we can rejoice in the fact that you are God and we are not. And even if we cannot make sense of all your ways, we can see your heart in the giving of your son, Jesus, that you yourself are acquainted with grief. You know what it means to lose a son. You gave yours willingly. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you gave yourself willingly. To deal with Herod's. And all the deal with the Herod of your own day. And all the Herod's of our day. You came to redeem. So that one day, someday, we would see you face to face. When you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And there will be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor death anymore. Because you are making all things new. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.